0: You're listening to The Lively Show, episode 100. Welcome to The Lively Show. I'm your host, Jess Lively, and this blogcast is designed to uplift, inspire, and add a little extra intention to your everyday. Welcome to the show, guys. Thank you so much, as always, for listening, especially today on episode 100. Today's sponsor is squarespace.com. Feel free to go over to squarespace.com lively for your free 14 day trial and use the code lively at checkout to get 10% off of your service. At the end of this episode, we'll be speaking with Bryn Hunt Palmer about squarespace.com in more detail. And we have a new sponsor today, audible.com, which I'm so excited to partner with because I want to give you guys free books and this is my way to do so. So if you haven't read Big Magic already or even if you have and you want to read a different book for free, head over to audible.com slash lively in order to get your free first book. I'm so excited since we have so many authors on this show to be able to partner with Audible and give you guys these free books so that I'm not constantly sending you guys to the library or to Amazon to buy them directly. And now on to today's show. This is episode 100 with Elizabeth Gilbert on my 31st birthday. I am so grateful to be able to say all three of those things in one sentence. Each one on its own is something to be grateful for and all three in one day is just over the top. Thank you guys so much for following along in this journey and being a part of The Lively Show. It has meant so much to me to read your messages, hear your comments, to get your questions answered here on the show as well. I have loved being a part of your life and I am so grateful you're a part of mine. Now on to today's guest. As I said, we have Elizabeth Gilbert on the show. She's a number 1 best-selling author with Eat Pray Love and her newest book Big Magic among many other books as well. In this show, we are covering a wide range of topics that come from Big Magic and beyond, including creativity, curiosity, having massive empathy for ourselves when we fall short of our values, and so much more. Let's go to the show. Liz, thank you. Thank you. It is a joy to have you here on the Lively Show.
1: My very
0: great pleasure. Thanks for having
1: me on. My, my emphasis
0: was really weird
1: on the ways. thanks for having me. On. This is a robotic Liz Gilbert. All my words are being fed through a computer program.
0: <laughs> is this really you? It's kind of like webinars <laughs> when they're like making sure that they say the date before them so people know it's a live recording. <laughs>
1: exactly. No, this is really me speaking to you. Um, I will try not to be so stilted and inhuman for the rest of the interview, but yes, I'm so happy to be here.
0: Tell me about your background and how you got to where you are.
1: Oh, that's fun. Okay, so I grew up in a family of rural eccentrics. I was raised on a small Christmas tree farm in New England by people who were very frugal, very pragmatic, very individualistic, a little bit odd, but that's not a bad background for a writer (laughs) (laughs) to come from a family of, of genuinely eccentric people who kind of did their own thing. We didn't have a TV. We didn't have neighbors my own age. And I just had this older sister who was and still is one of the most explosively creative people I've ever met in my entire life. And she and I had to kind of make our own worlds. There wasn't any worlds being provided for us other than books from the library and stuff like that. So we were always writing plays and writing stories and being creative. And she was older and smarter, so I was always trying to keep up with her. So I feel like I got my 10,000 hours of practice and creativity by the time I was four.
0: (laughs) It sounds like little women.
1: It is so much like little women you could not even imagine. We used to go to thrift stores and we had closets full of costumes. You know, we really did live in this very imaginary world. And I think my sister once pointed out to me that because we also had a lot of farm chores and a lot of work, the only time that my parents wouldn't pull us away from whatever we were doing, if they noticed us being idle and put us to work like moving wood piles or milking the goats or doing something is if we were reading she pointed that out i hadn't noticed that but that is true i feel like we both very early on realized that books were a place where you were allowed to hide and it was respected you know so i don't think it's any accident that uh, she and i both became writers so since then i've written i don't know seven or eight books (laughs) (laughs) so has she it's like the family cottage industry um probably best known for that eat pray love thing oh that thing that that old thing. And then the the latest one is a book about creativity called Big Magic, Creative Living Beyond Fear.
0: Which is pretty magical. Thank you. It is fantastic. I oh, I mean, I took a class on chakras. So I'm not a perfect person at understanding the chakras. But you seem so grounded and the lower chakras. But also in the really high one, it's the third eye. This is super random. Well, you know, it's funny because
1: I always say I have one foot with the fairies. But I really do have one foot very firmly on the earth. And that's, honestly, I think it's just from growing up on a farm with really pragmatic people and with a mother who was creative, but she's like the most practical human being I've ever met in my entire life and just governed our whole house with this ethic that nothing has to be perfect, but everything has to get done. I just was raised in this mentality that just says like, well, if it has to get done, it has to get done. You know, if the chores need to be done by five o'clock they need to be done. And it doesn't have to be, you don't have to win any awards for (laughs) how immaculately it was completed, but things need to be completed. And so I feel like I just have had half of sort of my mom in me, which is, you know, look, it's not a perfect book, but you know, the deadline's next week, so let's just get on it. And the other half of me very much lives in the world of the mystical and the magic and the mysterious and fairies and genies. And I almost feel like you sort of need both if you're going to be doing anything creative because if you're pure fairy, I mean we've all met people who are <laughs> they're going full fairy, you know, and it's like they're they are just so beautiful and so sweet and then sometimes you just like, "Can I get you a calendar? Can I help you with the checking account?"
0: Floating through life. Yeah.
1: Yeah. You just want to tether that balloon a little bit. And then people who are just fully empirical and 100% rational and who walk around the world with that very grim, flat worldview that says nothing is going on here other than what I can see with my own eyes. That to me just feels like a very sad and very limited life. And so I feel like you kind of have to make room in yourself for both. You know, you got to pay the oil bill, (laughs) but you can also like dance with the mystery at the same time. There is a way.
0: One of the things I know you and I share and I am a kindred spirit with you and I'm so excited to talk about this. What do you think about this heavy theme that seems to be online that if you're truly living a passionate life, you have to be doing it full time as a creative photographer, stationary designer, et cetera. What's your thought?
1: I think it's really harmful. And the reason I think it's harmful is that I have recently given up the whole fetishization of the word passion.
0: (laughs) I don't feel that way every day. I don't know if I connect with it. Who does?
1: I mean, unless you're so coked up, you know, um, I I mean, how can you sustain this idea that you have to be like full on, 100% passionate all the time? I feel like people who are selling that are selling a bill of goods. And look, I've always been a very passionate person. The reason that I don't preach passion to people, and by passion, I mean the way that it is now preached, which is, you know, full in, 100% jump off the cliff, the net will catch you.
0: Everything you want in your life has to come through that conduit alone.
1: Yeah. And you know, if you want to look at it another way, it's the same about like, or your relationship. You have to find the one who is like the everything. First of all, I don't think it's a very necessary piece of advice because if you have a passion in life that has got you so on fire that you cannot think, eat, drink, or breathe anything else, then you're already doing that thing. So you don't need somebody to be coaching you. That's the definition of that kind of passion. So I know what it feels like to throw everything in because there's been moments in my life where I've been like that. I know what that's like. And I certainly didn't need somebody telling me to do it because I was already doing it. But if you don't have that, which is most of us most days, and somebody tells you that you know you got to follow that thing that makes your head feel like it's on fire, and it's like a Thursday morning at 10 o'clock, and you didn't sleep very well the night before, and you're like, I don't know if I have. (laughs) And I think the reason it can be dangerous to preach that to people is that when they don't see that tower of flame in their own life for which they would risk everything, they're often led to believe that there's something lacking in them or that they are excluded, you know, so that they can just think, well, I guess there's something wrong with me. I'm just lame and normal. Or they'll just be like, well, I guess creativity and excitement and exploration are for other people, not me. That's what bothers me about it. I feel like everybody's looking for the tower of flame, but really it's a trail of breadcrumbs. The real creative life, the really curious life is about Following the tiny little hints of the scavenger hunt, it doesn't mean you got to sell your house and get divorced and shave your head and change your name and move to India and open up an orphanage. You know, we don't all have to do that this week. <laughs> but what you do have to do is to be awake and alert, and, and, and I'm using this word in the best possible way, entitled enough in your own life to believe that if there's something that's drawing you in, that's pulling your curiosity, that you're attracted to, that you're interested in, that you want to learn more about, that you want to engage with, you're allowed to look into it. And it might be nothing. You know, you might look into it for a week or two. You might like dedicate a weekend to a workshop. You might get up, you set your alarm a half an hour earlier every day and get up and kind of practice this thing. And it, and it might turn into nothing. Or it might be something, or it might be the next scavenger hint on the trail leading to what will be the thing. you know. And I feel like if you can give yourself permission to weave it into your life rather than setting your whole life on fire, I think it's going to be better for you and healthier for you.
0: Yes, and this idea of entitlement is very interesting because I can't remember with who you brought it up with in your podcast, but you mentioned entitlement and being entitled to live a creative life. One of the things about Gen Y, we are constantly, I wrote an article in the Huffington Post actually to contrast this, is this idea of we're entitled and that's why baby boomers hate working with us, Gen X hates working with us, blah, blah, blah. And I can see from my own work with my clients and people in my own generation that feel entitled to get every single thing they want in their full-time job in this specific way that's being touted on, So I think there's maybe different generations or different people even in Gen Y that need to own their entitlement to have a creative life. But what about those people that feel so entitled to have 17 things done by breakfast?
1: Well, okay. First of all, I'm 46. And I think the best possible way that you can look old, out of touch, and stupid is by criticizing the generation below you. So. I don't do that because I think it's lame um, and because it's it's also just something that's always been done. And I think it is the single most boring possible way that you can age. This <laughs> um, to be like, oh, these kids and the rock and roll music. I've never been interested in that position. You know, I wasn't interested in it when I was 20 years old and my generation was being told the same thing. And it's also... Too soon to tell. You know, it's a little too early to be determining what this generation stands for. We won't know for for decades and years what was actually going on, right? So I stay out of that. And for me, the word entitlement, the way that I want to repurpose it and reclaim it, is not about saying I deserve every outcome I want, because that to me is childish. And childishness is not limited to young people, by the way. <laughs> um, you know, that is something that, that extends through all of us. We all have a, a bit of that in us. The entitlement that I'm saying doesn't mean, I want it, therefore I deserve it. You know, I read a magazine article that said I should have this, so where is it? The entitlement that I'm talking about is the entitlement that's got this sort of dignity, I call it barefoot dignity. You're just standing in your personhood and your bare feet, and you're not saying, I'm the greatest. You're saying, I am. I am a member of this society. I'm a child of God. I'm a human being on my path. And I want to tap into the most interesting and fascinating part of human consciousness, which is creativity. And I have the right to do that. I have the right to pursue that. I have the right to explore that. I have the right to play around with materials. I have the right to engage in this, even if I don't have the proper kind of training, even if I don't have a permission slip from the principal's office, even if I don't have a degree, even if I don't have the backing of the right sort of people, even if I don't have the right contacts, even if I don't live in the right city, all of those things are erased by the kind of entitlement that I'm talking about that just says, I want to do this because I want to play with this mystery and I want to engage in this too, as my ancestors did, as your ancestors did. This is our shared human inheritance. The problem is when you start to say, and therefore I should get everything out of it that I want. Inspiration owes you absolutely nothing, absolutely nothing other than the pleasure of its company, right? So this is why I'm constantly telling people, keep your day job. (laughs) Whenever anybody comes to me and says I'm quitting my job to write a novel, my palms get sweaty and I get hives. It's hard to say that to people because they hear it as you don't believe in me. And that's not at all what I'm saying when I say keep your day job. What I'm saying is honor your creativity so much and love your creativity so much that you do not place upon it the demand to provide for your entire life. That is too much of a burden to put on such an ephemeral thing. So you're a resourceful person, pay the bills however you have to pay the bills, but then keep this thing sacrosanct, you know, and make sure that you're diligently paying attention to unfolding your creativity, um, however and wherever you can, because that's a very separate thing from saying that I should be able to get a paycheck out of this. I didn't quit my day job till my fourth book, and that was Eat, Pray, Freaking, Love. And I had written three books before that that were all published by major publishers, reviewed in the New York Times. Like, it would have looked to an outsider like I already had it going on. And I refused to quit my many sideline day jobs of the ways that I made money because I never wanted my work to become anxiety producing. And when you drop everything and you quit everything and you risk everything, you put such an enormous amount of anxiety on the work that I think it's untenable. I can tell you how many artists I've seen destroy their creativity because... They insisted that it's not real unless it pays the bills. And so they starve and then they become enraged and bitter and bankrupt and frustrated and anxious and depressed. And then they quit doing their beautiful creativity because they're like, well, that didn't work. You know, (laughs) if if that's what it feels like to throw 100% of myself at something, screw it. I'm not doing that. That's not what it means to throw 100% of yourself at something. It doesn't mean that you put yourself in mortal danger. It just means that you give it your entire heart. And then you, can, you take care of the real world on the real world terms.
0: You are saying we are entitled to live from our values and we're not entitled to the outcomes.
1: You're never entitled to the outcome.
0: <laughs> what is maybe seen about the generation or the stereotype is that they feel they're entitled to the outcome versus being entitled to live their values. And that's what you're saying is we are all entitled to live what is most important to us. What's maybe a little bit short-sighted is that we're trying to get at all of our values in our career. <laughs> we're entitled for our values, but it doesn't have to come from that one little place in our lives. And we are not entitled to the outcomes.
1: None of us are entitled to any outcome ever, <laughs> <laughs> ever, ever, ever. I mean, this is the fiercest truth that there is about life on earth. You don't get to know how it's going to turn out. And you know, the thing I'm always saying to creative people is that It's essential for you as a creative person to remain childlike in your worldview, which is to say to hold on to your sense of wide-eyed wonder, to remain exploratory, to remain curious, to remain open to new things, to see the world with new eyes every day. That is your contract. You're required to do that. But it is a terrible detriment to your creativity for you to be childish. (laughs) And there's a really big difference between childlike and childish. Childlike is a magnificent way to go through the world. You know, the Dalai Lama is childlike. He certainly is not childish. (laughs) Um, He is very well aware of what's going on in China right now. You know, like Desmond Tutu had a childlike thing where he would just sort of be bright and light and full of hope and full of the the sense of limitless possibility. My God, he was certainly not childish. He understood the cruelty and the savagery of the world, and he also understood politically kind of how to move through that world. So you can be childlike at the same time as being responsible. I mean, that's a word that just feels like such a drudgy kind of suburban word, but I love the word responsibility because with that word comes tremendous honor and dignity. You know, like the sense of you taking care of yourself and that you are able to take care of yourself in the world is the greatest possible way to walk this world, especially for women. Sometimes I have conversations with female artists who get really gripey about the fact that they're like... Oh, it's so unfair for female artists because male artists all through history had studio wives, you know, and patrons who just like paid for everything and took care of them and did all the chores and all they had to do was work. And I was like, First of all, that, it just feels like a weird, dysfunctional, codependent relationship that doesn't seem very attractive or appealing to me to have somebody who's basically your slave taking care of you all the time. I don't know why you're longing for that. And two, you can be your own studio wife. You can be your own patron. You can find a way to support yourself in this world. You don't need a sugar daddy. You don't need a grant. You don't need anybody to do this for you. You can do this yourself. And when you do it yourself, the amount of power that you will come into in your own life is so huge that people will see it from 10 miles away.
0: One of the things that I also loved in your book was this idea of the martyrdom versus trickster. What about martyrdom in other areas of our lives? Where are we assuming we need to suffer in terms of ending relationships, battling addictions, or politics? Like, how much are we actually creating this martyrdom mentality in many areas of our lives rather than just even creativity?
1: You know, my uh, feeling on martyrdom is very simple. Nothing that you do out of martyrdom is going to benefit anybody.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And the crazy thing
1: about martyrdom is that what you're doing is you're sort of killing your own life with this misunderstanding that you're benefiting other people by doing that. And I've never yet seen it work, ever, 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 which doesn't mean that you can't serve. And it doesn't mean that you can't take stewardship over the people who you feel responsible for or the causes that you care about, or you know the political work that you're throwing yourself into or the environment that you care about. It doesn't mean that you can't care and that you can't serve. But if you're approaching it, whether it's your family, your job, your health, the world, if you're approaching it from the sense of the martyr ethic, which is this is killing me, but it has to be done because no one else will do it. Believe me, you're doing no one favors. <laughs> and um, and I was talking about this the other day with a woman who does charity work that's very important and she feels very strongly about, and it's killing her. And she's miserable doing it. And she works with a population who, you know, is underserved and really needs what she's offering. But you can tell she sort of hates these people. I'm sorry to put it so bluntly, but she can only resent them because, she's letting her life be destroyed by what she's giving away of her life force. And I said to her, you think they don't know that? (laughs) (laughs) Do you think when you show up to quote unquote help and they see how miserable you are, they don't feel like a charity case? Why don't you find a thing to do with your life that ignites you Into such excitement and life that everybody wants to be near you rather than everybody just sort of being like, whoa. (laughs) Um, That's heavy, that's intense. There's a line that I put in Big Magic that comes from um, this British uh, columnist one time who said, You can always tell people who live for others by the anguished expressions on the faces of the others. We know the difference, we know what it feels like to be around somebody. Who's doing what they're supposed to be doing. And maybe what they're supposed to be doing is service. Because some of the most alive and joyful people I've ever met are people who spend their lives in service, but only the ones who are doing it because they love doing it. Those people are so effective. They're so prominent. They're so inspiring. They rally the troops. They make everyone around them feel like there's hope and possibility in the world. And the ones who are doing it out of martyrdom are just kind of spreading this thin oil of misery. (laughs) And they're also modeling for their children and family that this is how you are a serious person. You know, you become a serious person by letting your own life be destroyed. And that's a terrible example to be setting for your own children. I always say to to mothers who give up everything they love in order to feel like they have to be there 100% for their kids, if you're modeling martyrdom to your children, you're gonna raise little martyrs because they can't help but imitate you as they grow older. And if you model creativity and joy and excitement and liberation to your children, you're going to raise really interesting people.
0: We assume certain situations or circumstances in our lives have to be hard and cause a ton of needless, endless suffering. And your idea is that the trickster mentality might look at that same situation and circumstance that we collectively assume must be hard and we have to just endure it and get through We don't have to, we have this assumption it has to be that way, but the truth is we have a choice. That's kind of what I took for it. And I was like, wow, we assume politics has to be so adversarial. We assume battling addictions has to be this battle. Why do we use the word battling when we use the word addiction? Or how divorce in our society is looked at as this terrible crash and burn thing, or even just at the core, our ego. Why do we have to battle the ego? That's what it's really been eye-opening for me.
1: You know, martyrdom and sacrifice are at the basis of the (laughs) Judeo-Christian ethic in a lot of ways. And your badge of honor is how much you suffered. Look, I'm not denying that this world is a place of suffering and pain and that terrible things happen to people and that we have to go through terrible things in our lives that befall us randomly. And I don't even you know, even as a hippy trippy person that I am, I won't even dismiss that stuff by calling it karma or saying something really arrogant like, oh, God never gives you more than you can handle, which is the worst possible thing you can say to somebody who's going through something that is objectively just terrible. I don't feel confident enough spiritually to say that I know what suffering is for or that, you know, it's all for the good or, you know, it's all going to turn out great. Like, I don't write it off that way. What I'm talking about here is being very self-accountable with yourself about how much of the suffering and anguish and white knuckling that you're doing in your life right now has to be there? And how much of it have you just married because of some sort of an idea that this is what life looks like? And the trickster mentality starts to look at the stuff that's going on in your life and say, can we game this? (laughs) Does it have to be like this? You know, I think sometimes what happens when people get married to their martyrdom is that they're suffering from a failure of the imagination that there's an imagination shortcoming there that's saying, well, you know, dig down, push harder. And the the really enlightened kind of explosive imagination will look at that situation and be like, there's got to be a shortcut around this. (laughs) And the shortcut isn't, I don't mean a cheap shortcut, I mean a clever one, a way to sort of, you know, I'll give you an example just, just from my own career, right? So my last book before this, The Signature of All Things, one of the things that happens in book publishing is that oftentimes the author gets into wars and battles against the publisher for various disagreements on how things should be presented. It can be sometimes a combative relationship. Sometimes you act as partners and sometimes you act as adversaries. And I don't like adversarial scenarios because <laughs> I don't think they're very creative and, and I've never seen like inventive interesting things come from them. And so I was in a situation with my publisher with my novel where we disagreed on what the cover should be, which is the most old, boring fight that you can possibly have. And it's the kind of fight where, you know, you can apply this to whatever's going on in your own life. It's like, this is the assumption, like, well, that's how it always is. You know, we always get in a fight over this thing, you know, the boss and the employee or this team and that team. And it just became this like entrenched battle where I liked to cover that they didn't want and they wanted this one and they dug in and I dug in. And then, you know, I just could feel myself getting angry and feeling boxed in and feeling like martyry, that I'm either going to have to plant my flag and die on this hill, or I'm going to have to roll over and and be violated, you know, and I hated both of those outcomes. I thought there's got to be a more playful way to solve this, because nobody's enjoying this. And we all want the same thing. We all want this book to sell, you know, so it's not like we should be enemies. And so what I came up with was, why don't we go on social media And we put a bunch of different possible covers on and we let the readers choose the one they like. And we live in this era where I have access to half a million of my readers on Facebook every day. They're the ones who are going to be buying this book. Why are we sitting here in a fluorescent lit room arguing over what they want when we can just ask them? And I thought they wouldn't go for it because... People are so protective about their intellectual property that I thought they would say, like, oh, we could never show them the covers before the covers. I was like, why not? Why don't we just make this into a contest and they can vote and then they can feel involved and we'll go with whatever cover they want because that's what we want anyway is the thing they want. Within minutes, all of a sudden, this whole war ended. And then all of the social media designers, the publishing house came in and they were like, oh my God, we'll do it this way. And we can create these kind of flags and we can you know, send out these messages and we can have it covered in USA Today. And it turned into something that was so fun, so productive, and such a simple way to fix a fight that I feel like that's the trickster. That's what the trickster wants to do. So every time I feel myself just hammering down on some idea that, well, it's got to be a war. I'm like, Are you still married to this martyrdom idea or can we trick our way through this? And it worked out better. It worked out so much better for everybody.
0: And it even applies to not just another person in another relationship, even in our own lives with ourselves, we're assuming things have to be hard. I was just thinking about, I love Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by Stephen Covey and one of his big habits is now in our vernacular, Finding the Win-Win why aren't we thinking about finding the win-win within ourselves? We can find a way to help ourselves move in a direction we want to go without fighting and martyring our way there, even if it's a habit change, or you know, we want to stop watching TV so much, or I don't even know, just any other little habits we could use in our own lives that aren't serving us. How can we use the trickster mentality, even when it's just our own egos we're fighting?
1: First of all, we have such a severe and truly deadly problem in this culture with self-hatred. <laughs> and it's really hard to be playful with a self that you're at war with. And we're at war with ourselves because of this conviction that it's very normal for all of us to believe that we're not good enough. Like we really have internalized somehow that that's a perfectly normal way for a human being to walk through the world, that that is what the interior landscape of a human mind is. It's a kind of battlefield, it's a neighborhood that you wouldn't want to walk through at night. <laughs> it. Well, you know, it's hard. We just, you know, all these rival voices in our head and we're always fighting. And of course we fall short and we disappoint ourselves because we're humans and humans are screwed up. And there's just this really dysfunctional relationship between the self and the self. And we seem to have decided that that's fine. And in fact, I have this theory that self-hatred is the only socially acceptable way that you're allowed to think about yourself all the time (laughs) (laughs)
0: because otherwise you're a narcissist
1: well the thing is we're all narcissists right we all think about ourselves all the time but my husband made this wonderful point the other day he's from brazil which wears like slightly different ideas about joy than we have here in north america but he said look The reason happy people are so great to be around is that most of us spend our entire lives just thinking about ourselves. That's sort of what it is to be a human being. But a miserable person thinks about themselves 100% of the time because they're so obsessed with their own misery and their own sadness and so distracted by their own pain that that's literally the only thing they can think about. Happy people have a little bit more freedom where they only think about themselves like 98% of the time. <laughs> and then they have like 2% left over to be engaged and to be reactive and to be playful and to be having a good time. So so I think the sort of first step there is to ask yourself whether you actually believe that you're allowed to not hate yourself, whether you're allowed to extend some sort of friendly, light, playful, sympathetic idea towards yourself so that you're not constantly beating yourself with a stick. Because if you're constantly beating yourself with a stick, then of course you think that everything has to be a war. Because the war begins with the one that you're having 24 hours a day against yourself. The joy and the playful and the beautiful life begins when you finally put that stick down and just say to yourself with the greatest kindness, I don't want you to suffer anymore. (laughs) That's been my practice lately, whenever I find myself attacking myself for having Fallen short of my own aspirations or my own ethic, like for having lost my temper with somebody or for having not gone to the gym for a week or for like whatever thing is that I'm just beating myself up about, you know, for being a loser about. Basically, I now have this intervention where I just step in and I just go, Lizzie sweetie, I don't want you to suffer. No, it's okay. Okay, you didn't go to the gym. No worries. I love you. You're good. You're doing your best. We're all doing our best. What do we want to do today?" Can we put this away so we can go do a cool thing now (laughs) Um, or reach out to a friend and see how they're doing instead of just sitting here in the dark, hitting ourselves over the head? That's another kind of entitlement. Do you believe that you're entitled to love yourself and not love yourself in a Kanye way? As much as I do love Kanye, not love yourself that way. Love yourself as like, oh, this poor creature who I inhabit is having a really hard day. I'm sorry. Empathy empathy, just gentleness, you know, we're so hard and mean to ourselves. And then and then we expect that we can learn how to be compassionate and graceful and open and kind to others when we just treat ourselves like just so terribly. And practice on yourself the great tenderhearted compassion that I know you want to show to the world. You know, look, if, if anyone is listening to this, then you're like us, right? <laughs> like you want to be good. You want to practice kindness. You want to be somebody who goes to the world with an open, friendly face. You want to be forgiving. You want to be gentle. Like we wouldn't be here having this conversation if we weren't the kind of people who seek that. So look, you, you, conveniently, 24 hours a day, you live with somebody that you can practice all that stuff on. <laughs> <laughs> I love the sort of ethic of, I'm the worst meditator. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I suck at compassion. I got to be more compassionate. Come on. You know, it's just this like really aggressive Everybody, just calm down. It's okay. (laughs) It's okay. You're okay. It's just please try to extend a friendly hand towards your sweet, troubled, anxious self.
0: You don't seem to have this. Maybe it's coming from the fact that you've been deeply rooted in not being attached to outcomes for so much of your life and career in terms of you've had this huge success. So people look at you and go, well, you know, she's famous. It's easy for her to say she's had this extreme situation happen in her life, but I think you're so grounded in this because you never demanded that that outcome happen, maybe.
1: Well, I always wanted it, Jess, you know, and I feel like this is a really important point to be made. Don't go thinking that I don't want Big Magic to be a number one New York Times bestseller because I do. I have an ego that's very strong (laughs) and it wants the same thing everyone else's ego wants, which is everything. It wants everything. It wants 10 of them. It wants them in blue and it wants it tomorrow morning at 7 a.m. You know, like it wants, it doesn't know how to do anything but want. That's the definition of an ego. Don't be kidded into thinking that I've conquered that or that doesn't exist within me because it absolutely does. Here's the thing, though. I know that's not the only thing that I am. And I also know that I'm never going to get rid of that thing (laughs) because I also know that that's the common human denominator of what it means to be a person. I had a friend who was a, a Freudian therapist who had a great line that said, desire is the design flaw. It's the glitch in the software system. We all have that. And beautiful things can come out of that desire because that's where the urge to make art comes from. And it's where the urge to have romance comes from and to explore the world. All of that is sort of ego driven from wanting. I want stuff. I'm full of want, I'm full, of brimming over with want and always was, but I'm not only that. I'm not only that. There's other parts of me that I think are more interesting. And the part of me that I think is the most interesting is my soul. My soul just wants wonder and connection and creativity and, you know, forgiveness and empathy. My soul wants such good things and my soul can be absolutely fine even when my ego is taking a battering. You know, on one hand, yeah, I'm really successful. It's easy for me to say, yeah, it's all good. (laughs) It's all cool. Like what, well, one of the side effects of me being prominent is that people attack me a lot and I don't like it. It's really painful to read a really savage takedown review of a book that I worked on for four years. That's never a joy for me. And I'm not an enlightened enough being that I can read that and I don't have a physiological reaction to it. My heart will race, My stomach will turn into knots. I'll start to feel bad about myself. I'll start to have revenge fantasies about that person. (laughs) I have all the same reactions that anybody would have when they get attacked. And I get attacked a lot. But then the efficient thing is like I feel that and I'm like, wow, this sucks.
0: <laughs> like
1: this hurts and this is mean and I don't like it. And part of me wants to either punch that person or run away and hide. And then I can check in with my soul and be like, how you doing, soul? And my soul's like, I'm good.
0: <laughs> and that's the part that's not attached to the outcome. So when you speak for not being attached to outcomes, it's coming from your soul, yeah. even though the ego would still technically like – that if it was at all possible.
1: Yeah, I mean, look, if my ego was the only thing that I was, I mean, I had seven years of rejection letters before I ever got published. I would have had one if my ego was the only thing that I am. I would have had one, one rejection letter and been like, such a blow that that would be it for me. But my soul said to me, well, I wanna keep doing this. This is really fun and inventive and I wanna make up stories and I wanna play with creativity and I wanna, I don't care, (laughs) you know, it doesn't care. That part of me doesn't care, but I think we have to be very honest and very realistic and again, very compassionate with ourselves about all the different parts of us. If you're like using the fact that you have an ego as another reason to beat yourself up and be mean to yourself, you're not doing yourself any favors because that thing's not going away. You can have it forever. It's part of us. So let it be and then just try to find out where your soul is and ask your soul, what do you want to do? And it'll tell you all sorts of cool stuff that it wants to do and see if you can let that thing be the thing guiding your course.
0: In the book, you mentioned you cringe when people say they want to write a book to help people. And I know my audience and myself, and I know that's exactly the kind of thing that some people, not necessarily in book form, but people want to help people. So I'd love to hear why it makes you cringe and how we can look at it differently.
1: Well, whenever somebody says that they want to write a book, and I say, why, and they say, I want to help people, my first reaction is, oh, God, please, please don't.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I want to go into it. Why Why so? Please
1: don't. Please don't help me. Because it makes... I have this weird reaction where I immediately recoil because I'm like, oh, God, don't impale me. Please don't impale me with your wanting to help me. <laughs> <laughs> please. You know, like, oh, geez, I'm having a hard enough time already, right? So there's, you know, part of it is that it's like when you're being impaled by somebody else's well-intended goodness, sometimes it can feel like an attack. But for me, it's more like... As a creator, as somebody whose religion and mysticism and whole life is all about creativity, I know for a fact that that is not a particularly generative model for creativity. I know that that might become an obstacle for you. And because that's a weird sort of an egoy thing to want to do, what I want to say to the person is, That's fine. It's lovely. You have beautiful impulses. I'm glad you want to help people. That's very nice. But what do you want to do that makes your soul ignite? What do you want to do that makes you feel like you're in the flow? What do you want to talk about? What do you want to do that helps you, in other words? Because that's going to be the best possible way for you to help me is if you come into your own being, then you're going to be of service to me because I'm gonna see your liberation, I'm gonna see your excitement, I'm gonna see the life force thrumming through you. And I'm gonna be wanna be near you and I'm gonna to wanna to hear everything that you have to say. But first you're gonna to have to ignite yourself. And I remember when I was in India, there was an and this is a very again, it's a it's a lovely part of American culture, this thing of like I wanna help everybody, but you know, I was an Indian and, and I saw an American woman say that to this great monk, this great teacher. And he said, what do you want to do with your life? And, and she just looked like such a troubled person. <laughs> and she said, I want to help people. And he said, darling, look at yourself. <laughs> you can't even help yourself yet. Why don't you try to get your own house in order first? And then we can talk about if you have anything left over that you can use of service to others. So that's what it is. And it's not to demean the impulse to be helpful.
0: Or to wait till you're perfect in order to help. Yeah. Or to wait till you're perfect.
1: But good Lord, don't you know that the people who have the most impact on you, it isn't because of what they're teaching or what they're saying. It's how they are. It's their state. That's the thing that influences people the most is when you are in that person's company, their state is so extraordinary, so remarkable, so true, so pure, so much light, that that's what you're getting from them. It's just that the way that they are. And by contrast, you have, and I'm sure I know I I have met people who are sort of considered to be like thought leaders (laughs) and influencers in the spiritual world, and you're around them in private, and they're such a mess. They are such a mess. And You know, my friend Rob Bell says this all the time. He's like, if this thing that you're selling isn't even working for you, (laughs) like, how do you expect it to work for anybody else? So make sure that what you're selling is actually working for you, that you're smoking what you're selling, right? And that like, whatever it is that you're advocating for actually has changed your life and actually has made you a happier, better, more prosperous, more healthy person. Because otherwise, there's no authenticity behind what it is that you're offering, and you won't be able to serve anybody.
0: So basically, make sure it's working for you before you share it, and share it from a place of sharing your heart rather than trying to impale them (laughs) with the service. (laughs)
1: Yes. (laughs) And Rob Bell also has a wonderful thing where he goes, you know, we all get conversion experiences in life where we get really excited, and we feel like we found the answer. And he said, "Um, just be cool. (laughs) don't be the person shoving books into people's hands and then calling them up and then saying did you read that book i gave you yesterday and then giving them a dvd and then signing them up for a workshop and saying you have to take this cuz you have to now also become a convert to the thing that has changed my life you know he said don't be the kind of person who's running around preaching stuff that even 6 months ago would have made you throw up in your mouth a little bit <laughs> he said just live in your own place that you're in and let people see how you're doing. And when they see how you're doing, they'll be like, what are you doing that's making you so happy? Why are you radiant? What's going on? And then they'll draw near and they'll, they'll want to know what, what it is that you've
0: got. Be the change you wish to see in the world. Exactly. It doesn't work any other
1: way, unfortunately.
0: Unfortunately. Right. (laughs) So here's something I'm fascinated by. Your idea of psychological cycles of creativity and that you know yourself well enough now to see your cycles psychologically as you're doing creative work. And so you know what's coming next and you kind of can predict the emotional patterns that you have. Can right. you share what your cycle looks like?
1: <laughs> I call it the, um, the artistic menstrual cycle. <laughs> <laughs> so in the same way that I know seven days before my period comes to hold my tongue... <laughs> when I'm feeling incredibly irritated at the person near me because I have learned not to believe a word my mind tells me on that day, right? Like I've learned you will regret whatever you lash out about right now because this isn't really what you're feeling. You've been taken hijacked. There's a thing that's happening to you. Just go lay down with a cool washcloth over your head. Everything will be fine. Don't talk to anybody, right? Like I've learned that. I think if you're paying attention to yourself... And you can learn that in lots of different ways. And it's because I've been engaged with creativity for, you know, ever, but, you know, in a really serious way for like 25 years, I know that one month after I begin a project that I am so excited about that I was all gunned up about that I was telling everybody about that I was like, this is gonna be such a cool book. I know that a month later, I will wish I had never started it. And I will be telling myself that it's garbage. And I will be telling myself that I don't have any talent and I never did and that I'm a fraud and I'm going to be exposed. And whatever I ever did that was good is behind me and there's nothing left in me that I should just quit. I know those voices because they come again and again. And I know how tense I'm going to be two weeks before a book comes out, no matter how much I feel like I'm standing in my peace and my truth and not concerned about outcome. I know that I'm going to have a backache for the two weeks before my book comes out because I'm anxious about what people are going to think about it. And I know that that's normal. I know that I'm going to get a little offended when somebody criticizes it, but then if I listen carefully, I might learn something. It's all about just staying in it, even through those parts Because I know if I stay through those, I can get to the other side of it. And the staying with it is about this kind of trust that says, look, this is a very interesting, strange process. It comes with these weird wonky screwball sort of side effects. And if you can just stick with it, history has shown that it's worth doing. And again, dial back the drama. (laughs) Watch how severe the language is that you're using about how this is anguish and torment. Maybe it's not anguish and torment. Maybe it's just tedium. Maybe you're just bored. And just take a little break. We can watch five minutes of Ray Donovan, and then you can come back and try again. (laughs) So it's about, again, a kind of gentleness that says it's totally okay to feel this way, and you're going to get through it, and I'm going to be here next to you. And I don't even know who that I is that I'm able to access at this point in my life. I guess it's just like the soul that's been with me the whole time. That's like, we've come this far together, Gilbert. I'm not going to roll you under the bus now. (laughs) I'm going to walk this with you. We're going to get through it. And we're going to come out on the other side having had a really interesting experience.
0: Oh, I love that. So what doubts or internal resistance are you facing in your life right now?
1: The big one for me, it's not so much career stuff because I... I have such a friendly relationship with my writing. For me, it's more about the kind of person that I want to be, that I still can do a number on myself sometimes for falling short of that. So for instance, last week, I lost my temper at somebody I felt had criticized me out of nowhere, and I lashed out in a way that at the moment felt like, this is just me asserting my boundaries and being really strong and powerful, and nobody messes with me. And then two days later, I was like, oh, that was just me being a defensive (laughs) I was like, ah, geez, you know, such a thin line. (laughs) And so I thought, man, I didn't handle that very well. And I wish I had handled it with more generosity of spirit and more patience and more kindness rather than with defensiveness. So those are the kind of situations that I feel really insecure about with myself. Like I feel like, do I yet trust you to really deliver on constantly trying to hold yourself to the way that you want to be in the world? Those are the moments where, again, to mention my friend Rob Bell, Instead of beating myself up now, I just go, okay, we're not going to fall into a shame spiral about that. You handled it as well as you could, given what you knew last week about how to be. Next week, if it happens, you might handle it differently. That's called being a student. And you are a student. And on those days, I will just write the word student on my hand (laughs) to remind me that I'm not a master. Don't know totally how to do this in life yet, but certainly I keep showing up and trying. I'm not interested in being a perfected human being. I'm interested in being the kindest and most curious and most creative version of myself that I can be most days. (laughs) And then there's other days where, you know, you just have to go to Taco Bell and forget about it, you know?
0: (laughs) (laughs) I imagine you pulling up at the Taco Bell and someone going, what?
1: And I'll say to them, I just wrote a really nasty, snarky email to somebody that I regret. And I was, can I just have it? <laughs> three of those?
0: <laughs> Taco Bell is your therapist?
1: Yeah, three gorditos, whatever has the, the most cheese. And then you try again. I had a wonderful yoga teacher one time who said, standing poses are a very good place to learn that because she said, we do tree pose and you get all wobbly. And she says, some days you have your balance and some days you don't. And that is just how it is. It's not a crime to fall short of what you might have wanted to be, but it is a terrible crime and a sin and a pity to then abuse yourself for not having been what you wanted to be. That's not going to get you anywhere.
0: In that moment, you needed the kindness more than anyone else in that circumstance. The only response eventually is kindness for yourself, which you didn't get in the first place. I wish I'd caught that a little sooner, but yeah. <laughs>
1: I mean, I kind of unleashed my inner like queen of dragons, you know, and she doesn't come out very often. And what happens, I think, where I get deceived is that when that's happening, there's something a little bit exciting about that. Like, oh, you think I'm a nice person you can push around? Well, wait till you see the Like you just like blow fire at somebody and then you're like, I'm so badass. (laughs) And then later you're like, oh, I don't know if the Dalai Lama walks around fist pumping the air like, I schooled them. I don't think that's really what you want to (laughs) be.
0: That's really fascinating. Even just listening to you, especially on your podcast, it was so clear how much heart and how much energy you were radiating. And it's fascinating to hear that some part of your ego wants to show that you're not just that too. I am the one who knocks.
1: My inner Walter White, you know, look, that's one of the things I can be. I just, I'm learning that as satisfying as that might be at times, and like I can trick myself in that moment to think this is what a powerful woman is. There's a way I could have done that, that would have set the boundary just as firmly while also acknowledging that other person's humanity. That's where I fell off the wagon. (laughs) And that's just something to be learned. I was like, okay, so that didn't feel good. So next time, we'll try again, try again. Fortunately, if you're still here, if you're not dead yet, you know, you're still a student. You got another chance.
0: Okay, so last question, Liz. What would you tell someone who's just starting out on this journey?
1: Look, I'm a broken record about this, but I would say follow your curiosity, follow your curiosity, follow your curiosity. It is the most magnificent, beautiful, generous human trait. It doesn't take anything from you. You know, like passion, as exciting as it is and as much as we all want it, passion demands the full commitment. You know. And here's the definition. Here's how you can know that. Everyone just take a moment and think back on the most passionate love story of your life. How'd that go? (laughs) How'd that end up for you? And what kind of condition were you in when it was over and passion had taken the toll that it takes, which is to take everything out of you? Just back off for a while on the fetishization of passion and learn to trust the very friendly, very loving, impulsive curiosity. And learn to believe that if you are interested in something, no matter how tiny and insignificant and random and useless it may seem, that that's for a reason. That the Curiosity Channel is where God sprinkles the breadcrumbs on the great trail to find ourselves. And that if you can just be conscious enough and trusting enough and faithful enough and yeah, entitled enough (laughs) to believe that you're allowed to pursue that wherever it may or may not lead, then you will live a very creative life and you will live a very beautiful life.
0: Oh, that's beautiful. Liz, thank you so much for joining me today on the show. And thank you for inadvertently celebrating my birthday with me. (laughs) Ah.
1: I just, let's just make it advertent. Congratulations (laughs) on your birthday. I'm glad you're here. (laughs) And thank you for having me on and for letting me talk about my favorite thing in the world.
0: And there you have it. Thank you so much for listening. And Liz, thank you so much for coming on the show. If you would like to send Liz a message, feel free to head over to Twitter at Gilbert Liz. And if you want to find me on Twitter, Instagram, or Snapchat, you can find me at Jess C as in Curiosity Lively. And for show notes for today's episode, head over to JessLively.com slash Elizabeth Gilbert. And remember to get your free audio copy of Big Magic or any other book of your choice by heading over to today's sponsor, Audible.com slash Lively. Now, before we share who's coming up next week on The Lively Show, let's talk with Bryn Hunt Palmer about Squarespace.com. Hey, Bryn. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me, Jess. I am so excited to share you and your podcast. So tell us a little bit about yourself.
2: My name is Brynn Hunt Palmer, and I'm a mom to two kids living in Austin, Texas. And I recently launched a podcast called The Birth Hour, which features women telling their birth stories of all shapes and sizes in their own words. How far into the season are you? We just had episode five, so pretty, pretty new. But the response has been really great. It's been climbing the charts on iTunes, I hear. Yeah, I did a little screenshot and had a little party when I saw it as number one in New and Noteworthy for our category.
0: That is exciting. So tell us why you chose to use Squarespace for the
2: website for the podcast. I just love the way Squarespace websites look. They're so crisp and fresh and professional looking. And I had used WordPress in the past for my blog, and I knew I wanted to make the switch. And so I was a little nervous about trying it out for podcasting, because there's not a whole lot of information out there for using Squarespace for podcasting. But everything is all in one place on Squarespace. So I was able to make it work really easily and get the website up quickly without spending like a ton of late nights like I used to with WordPress (laughs) trying to figure (laughs) out all the different plugins and things like that. I hear that you have been building your email list
0: through Squarespace pretty effectively as well.
2: Yeah, it's really great for doing freebies and so you can create a form that people fill out and then when they get to the thank you page, you can attach the freebie right there so they get it right away and then all of their information goes straight to um, whatever email subscriber system you have set up. I use MailChimp and it's all integrated so it goes straight into your email list with MailChimp, which is really cool. And I also used it before I even launched. I put a cover page on my Squarespace website. Really, all that took was throwing up a picture and putting a a find out when the podcast goes live little note on there. And people were filling out the form. And my email list was built before I even launched, which was pretty cool.
0: That is awesome. And so for any other new podcasters out there who are trying to consider which website platform to choose, what would you tell them?
2: I would say don't be afraid to try something that not everyone's doing. I know that when you Google podcast websites, it's usually a lot of information about WordPress and plugins that can help you podcast via WordPress. But Squarespace has been able to do all of those things for me without needing a bunch of plugins, which is really cool. They also have really great support, which has been awesome for me because I would rather just send an email and get an answer back quickly than scroll through forums for hours trying to figure out how to fix something So if you have an issue with Squarespace, you can chat them if it's during business hours or you can email them and they'll get back to you. Even if it's like 10 p.m., they'll get back to you at 1030 with an answer, which has amazed me. So is there any other little hidden features that is like your favorite thing about Squarespace? I love the different blocks that you can use to put anything into a post. So you're writing text on a post and you can just click the add block and it allows you to do an image slideshow or an audio clip or a video there's also these spacer blocks which really helps with the formatting so if you ever have any formatting issues you can just add a spacer block and it'll automatically center things for you and it's super versatile
0: so for anyone who's looking to give this a shot, you can go over to squarespace.com lively for your free 14-day trial. And if you're ready to move forward with it once you've given it a shot, you can also enter the code lively at checkout to get 10% off of your service. Bryn, where can people find you online?
2: My website is thebirthhour.com or you can just search The Birth Hour in iTunes. And I'm also on Instagram and Twitter at The Birth Hour. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on the show, hon. Thank you. And now for a sneak peek. Next week
0: on the show, Lewis Howes of the School of Greatness podcast and lewishowes.com is coming on The Lively Show. He has a new book coming out called The School of Greatness, which we'll be talking about more and we'll be discussing things that he has never shared before in other interviews. I cannot wait to share this episode with you. And until then, may something wonderful happen to you today.